Hello and welcome to the 29th episode of the CCGI podcast. Our last episode featured Ontario-based chiropractors Dr. Brett Guest and Paul Mastrogostino. We discussed the recent CCGI osteoarthritis guidelines summary. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Dimitri Asimakopoulos. Dimitri graduated from CMCC in 2012. In 2014, he became the clinical coordinator and practice leader for the University Health Network Comprehensive Integrated Pain Program Rehabilitation Pain Service. In the hospital setting, Dimitri works with a team of physicians, nurses, occupational therapists, and physiotherapists to diagnose and manage complex chronic pain. Dimitri earned his diplomat in chronic pain management through the Canadian Academy of Pain Management in 2015. He joined the Chronic Pain Management Interdisciplinary Team at the Pain and Wellness Centre in November 2017, finally devoting his entire career to the diagnosis and management of chronic pain conditions. In 2017, Dimitri joined the Pain BC clinical faculty and has since been teaching a weekend-long Foundations of Chronic Pain Diagnosis and Management course to BC chiropractors and other healthcare providers across Canada. One of those chiropractors includes myself, so welcome to the show, Dimitri, and, and thanks for, for coming on. Uh, thank you, Galen, for having me. It's a real honor to, uh, to be interviewed and to spend some time with you today. Fantastic. Um, I was hoping we could just dive right into some questions and learn more about you. And, and uh, So could you tell us, uh, tell us about your role at the Toronto Rehab Institute? Yeah, uh, actually, the journey started at the Toronto Western Hospital initially, but I leave the, this whole like, timeline out of the story just to make it efficient. But uh, seeing as we have this time, I'll, I'll tell the story. The, the former director of our program, who's a real trailblazer in, uh, in chronic pain in general, um, you know, in Canada and, and arguably worldwide, uh, Dr. Angela Malis Gagnon, her um, she she used to run the the comprehensive pain program at the Toronto Western Hospital, and for the longest time it was it was medically based, and she had um, a few staff physicians that worked alongside her with some support staff like a nurse practitioner and a physician's assistant who who was trained in El Salvador, and. Um, it just so happened that after, I think, 20, 25 years of working together, the physician's assistant um, planned her retirement. So Dr. Malis, that naturally as a physician or as a trained physician, this person could physically examine people, but she was barred from doing so just by virtue of not having a, a Canadian license. So um, Dr. Malis really wanted someone with a, a different expertise in the MSK system um, with a good foundation, uh, while at the same time being able to adapt that foundation to chronic to diagnosis and assessment of chronic pain. So she um, was looking for a chiropractor, mostly because her son was studying in chiropractic school, and it was kind of a revelation to her what we were learning and capable of doing after being exposed to that. So I, um, I, uh, you know, like. Like anybody else, I uh, I interviewed for the for the job, and I uh, thankfully got it. And um, I've been working with you know some permutation of that program ever since. Dr. Malis actually left the Toronto Western Hospital or the UHN uh, University Health Network to open a community um, 
complex pain management program with the Pain and Wellness Center up in Vaughan. Um, and our program moved in, 2000 and, um, in 2015, 16 to um, the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute under our, under a new director, Dr. John Flannery, who's, who was the uh, director of MSK or MSK at, uh, at Toronto Rehab. Um, and uh, we've been under very different but great leadership since then, and, and the program has grown. So really my job at Toronto Rehab is to obviously work alongside the, the staff to, to diagnose and manage chronic pain, uh, largely from a medical perspective. Um, and then I'm also involved in various uh, additional uh, administrative efforts and educational efforts. So uh, in addition to seeing patients, I do all the paperwork. Um, and then uh, we plan curricula to train medical residents or physiatry residents, medical students, um, Royal College pain fellows uh, and residents, and um, hopefully getting uh, chiropractors on board in the future. And uh, I'm also involved in, uh, in working with various other staff members on quality assurance uh, programs. So right now I'm working on one with our nurse practitioner, a uh, fabulous, fabulous uh, um, practitioner and human being, um, Joyce Lee. And um, we're trying to figure out why, why we get so many fax prescriptions for medication. So we're just collecting that data in hopes of uh, improving the efficiency of the program and hopefully getting a um, publication out of it. So that's just one example of uh, the QI projects that I'm on. Um, and um, furthermore, we um, we all kind of work as a team to for, for QI. So we, um, we do various presentations on different tools we might use. So, you know, every so often I'm called upon to host rounds and say, hey, this is the way we use this tool. Let's look at the literature. Do we need to make any adjustments to improve our practices? So that was the other thing. That's the other thing I do there. And then finally, actually two more things that I'm working on. One is to create a chronic pain treatment program with the other allied healthcare providers. Uh, so I've been involved in that. And then finally, we're developing, uh, we develop competency-based learning objectives for our uh, pain fellows. So that way um, uh, we can develop a didactic curriculum. And so far, it's been mostly service-based. So we wanted to create a didactic portion to that. So I've been working with uh, the lovely staff at the program. So that way we can build that for the next uh, fellowship cycle. Wow. Okay. So you're pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like I'm holding a lot of, a lot of pots at the same time, but you know what? We, <laughs> we have such a wonderful team and we all work together. So we, um, we, we do some great work and that's, and that's in addition to my, or sorry, that's only one of my jobs. Uh, I also work at the pain and wellness center, uh, with Dr. Malis again, uh, where I do the majority of my treating. Um, but still I, I work, uh, beside her, um, assessing and managing patients. And, um, and then I also, you know, work for pain BC, uh, traveling to and from British Columbia now, now to other provinces to lecture. So I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty fortunate, pretty lucky. And now is that clinic the part of the academically affiliated government funded pain program? 
Yeah, so, so a, a little bit of context to that. So all of the academic pain programs are now networked through a central hub. And the program itself that's, that provides the funding, uh, the government funding is called the Toronto Academic Pain Management Institute or TAPME for short. And it's a hub and spoke model with Women's College Hospital being the hub and all of the referrals for pain management to, to the academic pain programs are sent there, triaged and then farmed out to the appropriate site. So with uh, Women's College, being in the middle, the, the different satellites are, one, Toronto Rehab, the Rehabilitation Pain Service, the, the Interventional Pain Service, the UHN Interventional Pain Service, which is sort of a combination of sites at Toronto Western and at Women's College because the physicians work at both locations. We have the Transitional Pain Service, which is transitioning people pharmacologically from from opioid consumption postoperatively to, uh, you know, titrating them downward. Subsequently, and then there's also the Wasser Pain Management Center at the Mount Sinai Hospital, and then there's the uh, pain service at St. Michael's Hospital. So all of us are downtown, and the one little blip, uh, which is kind of the, the the amazing star in this hub and spoke model, is the Pain and Wellness Center, who's out in the community. And so we have this academic affiliation, uh, while at the same time being having shorter wait times because we. We're a community-based service, and we uh, we provide a very comprehensive management strategy. So people who fulfill a certain criteria after being examined by one of our uh, staff chiropractors and physiatry, because we we do things side by side, um, if they if they fulfill a criteria for our program, they're granted access to pain management service for three to four months. Um, depending on what they need. So, and that includes chiropractic uh, services, um, massage therapy, CBT or psychology, mindfulness, um, uh, naturopathy, and nutritional interventions. Um, and the, the beauty of that is that we're all under the same roof. So there's no silos uh, here at the Pain and Wellness Center. We're all talking about the patients and sharing information and and uh, knocking on each other's doors, uh, in addition to having grand rounds where we can formally get the team together and discuss patient care. So it's pretty, uh, it's pretty remarkable. Well, it sounds like a fantastic setting to, to be in. I mean, uh, I was curious, after, after those three or four months, do, do the patients get discharged with the tools to self-manage? I mean, how does that process uh, come about? So what, the beauty of our program is that we we have uh, long term follow up. So we follow up, uh, we follow people up um, one month, six months, and twelve months post discharge. Um, now, pa different patients are are let go in different ways. So once we pass the three or four month mark, depending on the individual, um, if the providers believe that an extension is necessary, we'll, we'll do that because we felt, oh, you know what, this person needed a little bit more work, so we'll, we'll extend the program in a specific way. Other people are discharged uh, with a discharge plan. So sometimes that's, okay, now you know how to manage your condition. Um, oh, we, we should also say that, that the, the time, over the course of the timeline, uh, that the person is here, their care is tapered. So they'll go from coming in more intensely to coming in less intensely and less often um, with the message saying, okay, in the end, you're going to have to be able to have the tools to manage this yourself. 
So what do we do? So if that's coming up with um, um, some goals for self-management, like exercise or mind-body therapies or um, you know meditation, eating differently, it, it could be anything unique to that individual. Um, some patients, um, after their discharge, if they have the resources, become private patients. So they're not funded by the program anymore, but if they have the disposable income um, or, or insurance policy, they can become, um, they can continue their care under the guidance of whichever healthcare provider they need, um, only it's funded uh, by their own means. So those are kind of the different ways we, um, we discharge patients. It really depends on who the individual seeing uh, you're seeing in front of you. Great. So it really sounds like a, a truly patient, patient-centered, patient-oriented program, which 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 is wonderful. Um, yeah, it is. It's uh, it's really a delight. I was also really really curious. I think our listeners would like to know, you know, what does a new patient interaction look like for you in your clinic? I mean, how, I mean, from how do patients get referred to your clinic to what types of outcome measures are you using in practice? I mean, if you could maybe explain that a bit to us. All right, so so that that's a bit of a journey. So, <laughs> okay. at, at my at my office at the at the Pain and Wellness Center, I see two types of patients. As I said, one uh, one type is through the academic program or the interdisciplinary program. Pardon me. And then two, I see patients privately. So, patients who come to me through the interdisciplinary program come through physiatry. Patients who come to me privately can just call up and make an appointment like any other chiropractic office. So I, I have kind of a, there, there's a dual entry for patients to see me or any of the other chiropractors here. Um, so I'll tell you about um, people who just come in and see private, see us privately can literally just call us and make an appointment. So they need, they don't need a referral. So that's like any other textbook chiropractic visit through the interdisciplinary program the journey is a little bit more rigorous. So patients are referred to our physiatrists who, um, who when, when we receive a referral, we triage it. And we, based on the information that is given to, given to us and their distance from the, the, from the center, we will, uh, we will give them an alphanumeric rating. And, and that alphanumeric rating is to rate the complexity and, and the distance from where they are to us. So, um, and it kind of gives us a little bit of a snapshot. And we don't always hit it right because sometimes we don't get all the information we need. But um, so that's the first test is we, we say, let's rate this patient superficially based on the referral and all the information we've received um, based on the level of complexity and the distance. Uh, and then the patient is scheduled um, to see both a chiropractor and the physiatrist at the, same, at the same time. So the role of the chiropractor here, and there are five of us here, are to perform uh, a comprehensive um, biopsychosocial history or pain history. Uh, where we where we understand the temporal nature of of their complaint, so how it happened, why it happened, the context with which it happened, and then the timeline over the timeline, how is how is the complaint changed? Um, and then we do a standard um, pain assessment, which includes you know what are the different parameters around your pain, pain ratings, etc. Um, we have a look at their medication and their efficacy. Um, 
and that's that's more of a, just collecting data from from the perspective of the chiropractor. We don't make any um, alterations to medications, of course, because that's outside of our scope. Um, and then we we take a very comprehensive psychosocial history, um, and then we move into examining the patient. So the whole patient interaction. Uh, or, and then we go and report everything to the physiatrist. The physiatrist comes in and um, will ask their litany of questions, should they have any, um, above and beyond what the chiropractor's already reported. They'll do part of a physical examination, and then we have a little bit of a powwow, and we say, what does this patient need? Do we need more investigations? Um, do we need more information from the family physician, such as reports? Um that that weren't sent along with the patient and their referral um or do we say you know what there's let's rectify this person's medication based on what the physician's uh recommendations are get them an intervention or we enter them into our interdisciplinary pain program um and that's where the whole notion of distance comes into play um so if they satisfy the criteria, they'll be booked for an intake appointment where they do all of our uh, patient reported outcome measures before they start the program. Um, and that's guided by one of our amazing staff. Uh, and there are so many patient um, uh, patient outcome measures that I couldn't even list them all. And the reason why is because we we justify our funding based on results. So the more data we can compile, um, the, the more we can demonstrate the efficacy on from, from a biopsychosocial perspective for the patient. Um, so we're doing everything from the promise, from, um, you know, the GAD-7, the PHQ-9, catastrophization scales, kinesiophobia scales, self-efficacy scales. Um, Actually, I don't think we use the PHQ-9. I think we use the CESD um, and, um, as a baseline. And then the patient goes through their 12- or 16-week intervention. And then the on discharge, the patient does them all again. Um, in addition to uh, what they, the, the, the patient outcome measures that they already recorded, they also do a number of uh, subjective outcome measures where the person can subjectively rate their, their improvement in, in a number of ways. So that's the, the PGIC uh, or the patient's global impression of change. So they say overall, how much is your pain improved? How much is your sleep improved? How much of your relationship with other people improved, et cetera? Um, so that way we can we can correlate their uh, their reporting on the um, you know their self reports to to the outcome measures, and I think about seventy percent of our or close to seventy percent of the people we discharge give us a rating of um, of much improved or very much improved in all of those domains, and then. Kind of the rest of them are, you know, kind of in the middle of the road, and then a, a minority uh, don't improve at all. Um, so that's and, and that's our way of kind of refining our criteria and saying how do we how do we capture the people who are going to benefit, and how do we capture the people who are are not going to benefit at all? So that way we justify our funding. That was a long-winded answer. Sorry, Galen. No, I mean that's uh, it gives us a, a great little window into into what your your day to day life is like, which is 
Um, very intriguing. So, so thanks for sharing that. I, I'd love to kind of veer off into the, the chronic pain workshop, which is how I, you know, got reintroduced to the work you're doing here in Vancouver. Um, I was hoping you could tell our listeners about the chronic pain workshop, and maybe some key takeaways from that course. So that's uh, that's been an ever evolving, um, an ever evolving thing, um, mostly because I'm never satisfied. Um, so I was uh, I was approached by the British Columbia Chiropractic Association to work alongside uh, an ad. I guess if I were to reduce it down, it's so much more than this, but uh, to an advocacy group called Pain BC, um, and in conjunction with the amazing staff at Pain BC, who are mostly educators um, with a passion for for managing pain in in the province, um, we came up with this with this sixteen hour course. Um, and they've actually been instrumental in working with other healthcare providers, um, um, physicians, uh, physiotherapists, OTs, massage therapists, and now chiropractors in improving the, the efficacy of uh, chronic pain management. So I was lucky enough to start working with them, and we developed this two-day course. And really, the, the MO that I'm that I'm going for, and again, it, it might be different now compared to at least the content might be different now between, um, you know, sorry, between now and, and when you initially took the course, Galen, is I come from the frame of reference of what can, what can be taught and learned, what can be taught by me and learned by the, by the delegate. So that way they change their practice on Monday. So if that's, from altering the way you take a history and asking some different questions to recognizing psychosocial um, barriers to, to improvement or psychosocial generators of the pain experience, um, adapting your, your chronic pain um, physical examination to understand, well, you know what, there's a subtle neuropathic pain or there's an element of central sensitization here that changes our prognosis or our management. So really it's about truly delivering um, skills, soft or hard skills, um, that can be used on Monday to help the, um, the chiropractor move a, a difficult patient forward. Yeah, I know for me it was the aha moment was the understanding of central sensitization and being able to articulate what my patients appeared to be going through. And so that was, a, for me, a big aha moment in the course. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad I could do that for you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> what well, made, made Monday practice a lot more, uh, make a bit more sense, which, which was appreciated. Um, well, that's always good. I like, I, I enjoy hearing that because um, some, sometimes I, uh, I sit there and say, oh my God, like it's, it's, daunt, it's still daunting for me sometimes. And I'm constantly learning and adapting. So, and, and I'm in the thick of it every day. So I sometimes I have difficulty going back to when I was, you know, n not experienced in chronic pain and having to deal with these complex patients. Regardless, I I, I think to myself, is what I'm is what I'm teaching the delegates actually transferable? So knowing that it is is a big <laughs> thing for me. So thank you. Well, yeah, I think part of that is embracing the process rather than the outcome, which is is hard hard to <laughs> to get your head around and really just uh, being okay with not always knowing <laughs> everything oh yeah the, part of practice yeah we we dance with this with this with a certain level of uncertainty all the time in chronic pain so you know it's it's com it's complicated 
Yeah, well, that's good to hear when we're in our silos. <laughs> um, I mentioned this earlier, but I was hoping you could even maybe share a clinical case with our listeners. Um, this is something you're great at in the course, and, and it would be great if you're able to share something, something pertaining to chronic pain management or assessment in particular. Yeah, so there are there are dozens that I could that I could pick. Um, do you want a successful one or an unsuccessful one? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> Maybe since we're only doing one, maybe a successful, <laughs> successful one. Okay. Um, I mean, we do have our fair share of failures, that's for sure. So I'll, I'll share with you a successful one. I had a patient come into my my private practice with um, with headaches, and and this is actually a, a really good example of when a chiropractor can be instrumental in identifying. A number of barriers for a patient because it's because of the way we interact with patients, and then also a good example of when we kind of have to let go and say, you know, my job kind of ends here, and uh, truly thinking about the patient. So, this um, 34 year old female came into my practice um, with about a year of headaches, and. Uh, um, there were suboccipital in nature, and then they started to spread to the periorbital and, and parietal areas. Um, and she was really having difficulty dealing with them every day, and it was starting to really interfere with her life. Um, and there was an insidious onset of, of pain, so there was no clear mechanical generator that she could come up with. And um, the, this is where understanding the patient's expectations uh, is key. Um, so when I asked her the, the question, what do you think is wrong with you? She pointed to the back of her head and said, I think I have cancer right here because this is where I have pain. And any number of us would say, yeah, you know what? I've heard that from a patient before. Um, and I know you probably have, Galen, in your experience, and this is not something that was new to me, but working with chronic pain patients, I sit there and I say, well, the ultimate placebo, the ultimate way to take care or, or to take advantage of the placebo effect is to understand what the patient's expectations are and to, if, if it's realistic, fulfill them. So I, I proceeded to, to do the, the most comprehensive neurological examination I could do on this patient. Because if it was a neurological tumor, which is she thought she had brain cancer, I, um, I, uh, I wanted to be able to tell her that the statistical likelihood of this being a cancerous lesion is lower because there's nothing in the examination that would lead me to suspect that. And I chose those words from a medical legal standpoint purposefully because, you know, I never want to give anybody a guarantee. I just tell them about probabilities. Um, but the other thing that I gleaned from there, so I could, I could fulfill her expectations there, but the other thing that I gleaned is that there were a number of psychosocial stressors that were correlated temporarily um, with the onset of symptoms. So at the onset of symptoms, she started working in a job she really disliked. She started doing an MBA and she really wasn't at the same time, full time. And she wasn't really sure what she was going to do with her life. So that level of uncertainty um, was one temporarily correlated psychosocial stressor for her. Um, and when we discard and when we started discussing these things, she actually started to get more and more headaches. And then and I was able to ascertain like when you're in the thick of this stress, does your pain get worse? And she said, yes. So I knew that there was a psychosocial barrier here and it really is just about 
taking the time with your patient to and asking the right questions. So I could barely assess her because she could barely move her neck. She was so distressed and in so much pain. So what I got her to do was do a, a mindfulness exercise called a body scan during my assessment with her. And we went through two or three cycles of these and she went from an eight out of 10 to a two out of 10. And then suddenly she could move a little bit better. And I, I, I couldn't touch her in any way because she was in too much pain. So rather than going on and, and, uh, um, and providing a passive um, therapy that, that we all see work in this patient, or that we all see working every day, I decided to take a different um, strategy and route with this patient. So I sent her home and I said, that mindfulness exercise that we did, I want you to do twice a day. And she really wanted to return to activity. So I said, okay, start returning to activity. And we set some goals about how to do that. So her goal was to at least once a day do some form of physical activity, whether that's doing yoga or cycling, something that she inherently enjoyed. Um, and then the following week, she came back and she told me that she was at a constant eight out of 10 on average maybe going as low as six to that week when she, when she followed up with me being at a zero out of 10 with only one hour where she was at about a two. And that's because she learned to garner some control over her, over her pain. And that's one thing that is very important in the context of, of pain management is, is, teaching the patient how to garner a locus of control or develop a locus of control of pain. And sometimes we, we do that with, you know, pain relieving positions. Uh, sometimes we do that with uh, physical exercise. Um, and, but one thing that chiropractors often miss mostly because of training is, is giving people some psychosocial strategies to, to um, to develop self-efficacy and locus of control. In her case, that's what she needed. She needed to, to calm her, her level of distress. Um, and then when she came in, I could then do range of motion on her, which I couldn't before. I could then palpate the suboccipital area and find you know, some upper cervical dysfunction or, um, or myofascial um, tension in there that might have been a, a, a biomedical contributor to pain and then address those. Um, and then we came down to, to the notion of, okay, we, these stressors are going to continue to happen. So how do, we, how do we eliminate them as contributors and how do we give you the ability to manage? So I finally, after doing a couple of treatments, I let go of the patient and I set her up with a, so, a community social worker. Luckily, she had the disposable income and the insurance to pay for this. So she started seeing a social worker with the, with the goal of finding some psychosocial means of, um, sorry, finding some means of managing the psychosocial stressors and also some coaching of how to discover what she wants to do with her life. And in the end, I followed up with her a few more times. Headaches were, were gone completely. Um, she was starting to identify what she wanted to do with life. She had some ways of managing her distress. And then she actually moved to England because that was something she always wanted to do. It turns out her twin brother was moving there. So she went with him and um, she's now living a pain-free life. Wow. 
<laughs> that's a good that's a good case to to share um you know we we often forget the the power of our words uh and as manual therapists you know it's easy to forget that we have such an impact um without even using our hands which is great yeah and we you know we we have the the luxury of of being able to develop really amazing relationships with our patients and that's that's one thing I, I feel physicians don't have not the, not the ability to to do. I, I think they have the ability to do that. They're they're very much limited by time and demand. Um, and, and what we have to understand is that every healthcare provider fulfills a certain. Um, how am I going to put this? They actually have an individual role that is collaborative and complementary to the others. And I don't mean that from the standpoint of complementary and alternative therapy. I mean that our therapies complement each other. Um, so if a physician is on board and they're managing them from the medical side, chiropractors can manage some of the biological aspects of, or musculoskeletal and neurological aspects of the person suffering. But developing that relationship is also therapeutic as well. And one skill that, you know, the older school chiropractors have and, and the, yeah, that the older school chiropractors have is that they really spend a lot of time listening to their patient. Um, and that because, because of the way chiropractic has gone and we, we, we constantly seek to legitimize ourselves as, as neuromusculoskeletal providers, we often forget that developing that relationship is inherent to success. So we, we need to spend more time learning to, to cultivate that skill again, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I completely, completely agree with you there. But now, before we move on to our, 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 the last question that I have for you, uh, yeah. I think it's timely for me to plug that uh, you mentioned a patient with uh, persistent headaches. So uh, just a couple of days ago, this is early February that we're recording this, uh, a, a new clinical practice guideline was published. And as a clinical practice guideline organization, I, I should do this <laughs> and I would like to. But so a new gu a guideline called the Non-Pharmacological Management of Persistent Headaches Associated with Neck Pain uh, was published by the Optima Group, the Optima Collaboration. Uh, it's an evidence-based guideline providing recommendations for the conservative management of persistent headaches associated with neck pain. So I just thought I'd give that a plug because that's out there and published now and, and uh, uh, that'd be worth a read for our listeners <laughs> as well. Yeah. Yeah. What, what a wonderful thing to, to publish on because, you know, the, it's, um, there, there's a lot of evidence that for certain types of headaches, we might be able to, to help patients and be part of their overall management. So, you know, what a, what a wonderful thing you guys are doing over at the CCGI. I really commend the, the effort. It's all about just kind of make, making it accessible and easier <laughs> for clinicians, yeah, right? which is hard hard enough to do. Um, boy, and that kind of dovetails nicely into my last question for you, which is, uh, you know, as, as someone who who knows you as a relentless uh, learner, uh, you know, I think entrenched in the, the process of learning. Um, you know, how do you stay on top of recent research, and and do you have suggestions for clinicians just trying to stay current or just trying to learn? What can they do? 
Well, I, I, I can speak for myself first, and then I can I can speak to what I what I advise um, practitioners, uh, young practitioners, um, to do when I when I interact with them. I um, I think mental uh, ta- avoiding the the discussion of of mental health is really taboo, and um, so I can I can open this up by saying that um, I am an anxiety sufferer, um, and part of that anxiety is is needing to to know everything. So I think that I've I've taken one weakness in my character and in some way turned it into a strength. So because I'm 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 anxious, I I make it a I make it a, I channel that anxiety into learning. So and because I'm entrenched in in chronic pain management, I, I really just sit there and say, I want to learn about this. So I, I dive right into it and, and read everything that I can. So, so I channel that, I, I channel that, um, that anxiety into, into learning as much as I possibly can into something positive that, that nurtures me. So really, and, uh, you know, making this course was really, was really a good way to do that because I knew the elements that I wanted to teach and what the outcomes were. So I had to, I had to fill all the knowledge gaps that I had. Um, so really it's just about establishing a goal uh, about what exactly do I, do I want to learn about? What is something that I need to learn about? Uh, and those sometimes can be mutually exclusive. Um, and then deciding that I want to learn about this specific topic and setting a certain amount of time uh, as a deadline for myself to do that and setting aside a certain amount of time per day um, and then spending that time learning and nurturing my mind. Um, and that's really what I tell young providers when they, when they come through um, is to say, if, if there's something that you need, that you feel as if you need to know, or something that you want to learn about, take the time, schedule it, download as many or search for as many articles as you can, and then and then learn about that topic, and then really try to identify ways of applying it to clinical practice. Um, and me, I have this, um, I have this innate need to. If I learn about one thing, I need to learn everything about it and how it connects to other things. So if I want to learn about, you know, how how distress and anxiety is is involved in in as a contributor or as a as a possible uh, causal factor in in pain or in the pain experience, I want to learn about its its epidemiology. I want to learn about its uh, its mechanism, and I want to learn about its treatment. So I learn everything from the cellular structure all the way down to its implementation. So I encourage um, I encourage young providers to be true consumers of research and and really try and follow it from the ground up. So that way you can understand what impact your hands and your words have on that individual in front of you. Um, the other thing that I encourage people to do is to take things in context. So rather than reading an RCT. Um, while they while they certainly are valuable, that conclusion matters in a certain population. But I, you've probably heard this in my course, is that every patient who's sitting in front of you is an N equals one. 
So how does the knowledge you, you acquire apply to that person? And that's why it pays to, to have some variability in what you're learning because not every tool is effective for every patient. And you as a detective need to understand why and then identify what the tool you need is. So that's why it's important to acknowledge holes in your game and then figure out ways to patch them up. Or if you can't patch those things up, understanding where your job begins as a chiropractor, where your job ends as a chiropractor, and then identifying where to go if your job is ending. So that's my, that's my little spiel. But establishing goals is the, is the best way to do that. Figure out what you want to learn, how you want to learn it, what you need to learn, and then execute. Wow, those are fantastic words of advice, Demetri. Thank you for that. I appreciate it, Kayla. Um, you know, I, I, I really could, I, I feel like I could sit down and chat with you for hours about this, but uh, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, you, you have a much busier schedule and, and that wouldn't allow for it. But uh, this has been a really insightful time, and I really want to thank you for sharing your story. It really was a pleasure to have you with us today. It was my pleasure to be here and to chat with you, Galen. I really, I really appreciate and really love the the work you guys are doing over at the CCGI. <clears throat> As you said, you're making your work accessible to the to the, you know, the the most run of the mill and and even the most professional chiropractor. So, knowledge translation is a huge thing, and I um, I'm glad that you guys are around for sure. Well, thank you, thanks again, and and uh, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Uh, We look forward to bringing our next guest in a few weeks. And until then, bye for now.